0: Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, episode 205, Social Justice Board Gaming. We'd like to thank our brand new producer, Patreon backer, Andrew. Andrew, man, you rock! You're listening to a proud member of the Dice Tower Network, dedicated to bringing podcasters together for the greater good of gaming. It's sort of
1: like Voltron but with better lip-syncing. Find out more at Dicetowernetwork.com.
0: Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, the podcast with board gamers and the insane fun we have at the table together. This is Chris. And this is Anthony. Anthony, we are recording here on Monday, January 21st, 2019. And as we should mention, as probably all of our American listeners know... It is Martha Luther King Jr.'s birthday and a federal holiday, which we're celebrating. And we wanted to do something a little special. This is an episode that we've been talking about for quite some time and trying to put together games that would kind of bring the essence of social movement, social justice, you know, making your community better, making yourself better, making the world a little bit better, because frankly, we could use a lot of that right now. And obviously, Martha Luther King being one of the greatest social justice, civil rights leaders in history. Um, perfect time for this, perfect episode for this, and just something we want to talk about. So we have a great episode talking about those games and a hope for more of those games to hit us up later. Right, Anthony? Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a good time to talk about this. And
1: like you said, we've been kind of ruminating on this for a while.
0: I want to let people know that. Gaming can do so much more than most people might think that's possible, and helping you give you tools or giving you ideas as far as making the world a little bit better of a place might be a great thing to have at the table. So we have so much great stuff to talk about for this week. You know, board gaming is a great hobby and a great way to bring people together. So Anthony, let's get on to the episode. A lot of good stuff this week. What is everyone else saying? What's our question of the week? It's cold, it's dark, it's rainy. A lot
1: of time uh, traveling, (laughs) (laughs) hiding in uh, dark spaces. So I asked everybody what their go-to digital board game was when they're on a bus, uh, in a line, on a train, wherever they happen to be where they're waiting around. Mm -hmm. And so got a lot of good answers here. There's a lot of digital board games out there. But it's funny because a lot of the answers were games that have been out for a little while. So Mm -hmm. Ticket to Ride, Carcassonne, uh, Paperback is, you know, it's been around a little bit. Ascension came up a lot. A lot of people still playing Ascension. Star Realms.
0: Yeah, Yeah, Star Realms, obviously, it's been around forever, too. Star Realms is great, and Star Realms is free. So that's another good thing about that. Yeah, right. (laughs) I did have a couple people mention Hearthstone, which is, you know, board game adjacent. And I play that, so I'm with you. Me too.
1: Agricola, Lords of Waterdeep. We had some of Mm -hmm. my favorites. Solo games that have been converted to digital. Friday, Onirim, Ganshon Clever, uh, Uh Notemal. And uh, tick, Ticket to Ride, like I said, was mentioned a few times in a different iterations, but also yes. Through the Ages, which is okay. probably the biggest and most uh, ridiculous of all these games, but also the best. <laughs> so, yes. And then, of course, uh, Tim mentioned Suburbia, which yes. is currently up on the Kickstarter for the Collector's Edition, torturing me with its updates as I try to manage my wallet. Um, but very good app, very hard app, by the way. Yes. And uh, I've burned a lot of time on that one as well.
0: Yeah, I think the Suburbia app is one of those rare occasions where somehow Bezier Games was listening when we were talking about playing Suburbia and the fact that it always felt like you were building a specific city when you were building it up, just, just randomly like, hey, this has all of those things and it looks like this. So clearly it must be this city. So when they came out with the app, And you are basically building a specific city. It was more of a puzzle formula type of situation. It was a lot of fun. It was shocking and surprising. But man, it is a rough, tough game. So I typically skip that. I got pretty far on that. And I just kind of got bored at some point. And I moved over to just playing against the AI, which isn't always the best opponent.
1: No, no. And that's the thing about a lot of these games. Like, is the AI good or not? Sure. Uh, core mechanics can be fine, but like Seven Wonders, for example, I played that app for about a week solid, maybe 30 or 40 games in. And just mm-hmm. every time I played the, the computer would build up like 30 military. Like why, <laughs> why would you do that? <laughs> Nobody would do that in real life. That's not how this game works. Isn't it- uh, it's just, it was frustrating.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, it's tough. The real challenge in games is when you're asking the AI to actually trade with you because Then things go completely out the window. I think getting Catan early on and just going, well, this is not going to work. You're, you know, either it trades really, really well or not at all. Or sometimes it's just completely stupid. It's just there's no in between when it comes to the AI as far as that's concerned. I play a lot of apps on my phone and iPad. It's kind of the thing I do when I'm not really playing board gaming so much. I guess if I do have my iPad, it's Small World, the second edition, It is a fantastic app and the AI is really solid on that too. And you can play, I think it's between two and I think maybe five players on that game. And it's still one of the best apps out there. If I have my phone and I'm not playing Hearthstone, which typically I'm playing Hearthstone, but if I'm not playing Hearthstone, then it's probably going to be something quick. So it might be something along the lines of of a quick tick to ride. Obviously, Seven Wonders I'm playing a lot recently. I have so many different app games I guess that pretty much fits the typical realm of of the games where it's like these games are great. these games are fast I can I can knock them out in like I don't know ten minutes tops, probably not even and they just play really well despite the speed. not all games play that f- well quickly. no, yeah, there's a few on here. like
1: I love that I could theoretically pay terra mystica on my iPad, but I don't mm-hmm. very often do it because it still takes forty five minutes and I'm like sure. well, that's not really the point of this whereas Race for the Galaxy, I can play in six minutes. So sure. <laughs> play that all the time.
0: Yeah, I have the same problem with Agricola, uh, which I have. But it's just too many different screens. You have to kind of swipe back and forth to be able to see what you're doing, what you're building, and you just can't get a good sense of the the game board. So it, I bought it, and I don't play it just because I just can't get a, through a game of it. All right, so that's what everyone's playing during this frigid, frigid season over here, on, at least on the East Coast. So, Anthony, we have a lot of great games to talk about. The Obviously, the acquisitions are hitting hard because Kickstarter has been blowing up here. There's so many good things to talk about. So much stuff in the news on top of everything else. So let's get started. What are your acquisition disorders this week?
1: Yeah, so uh, it's no surprise or coincidence that I chose th- that as the question of the week because my... Uh, Acquisition Disorder this week is a whole bunch of digital games. Direwolf Digital, who frequently partners up with Renegade Games, um, they've done apps for Lanterns, and they also work on Clank, obviously. Yep. Uh, they announced something like six or seven games they're currently working on. So the first mm-hmm. one is Raiders of the North Sea, which is fine. It's a perfectly good you know, entry-level Worker placement game that a lot of people like, and I don't mind. But the big, big news is all the other games they listed in that press release when they sent it out. Because first up was one of my all-time favorite games. It's in my top 10. Mage Knight, the probably the best solo game ever made. And now it's coming to digital, where it belongs because that's what solo games are made for. Root, which is the biggest game of 2018. Yellow and Yankee, which is the the update of Tigers and Euphrates from Reiner Kenizia, Sagrada which is, again, I feel like a perfect game for digital. And then this one was really interesting because I didn't even think that any of these games would be a good fit on digital, but Wings of Glory, Wings of War from Ares Games, they're tabletop, you know, plane fighting games based on the, the flight path system. So that opens an interesting door of other possible flight path system games in the future, not necessarily from these guys, but just if this works... Maybe so much stuff here. I mean, Mage Knight is definitely way, way, way at the top for me. Probably also the one that's going to take the longest to build because it's such a complicated game. But I'm very excited for that.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm excited as well because I don't play a lot of solo games just basically because of the setup of a solo game. And it just doesn't seem like if I'm going to set up something that massive, especially Mage Knight, that I shouldn't be playing with other people. So having this in a digital format might actually get this to my tablet. I will say though, historically, I haven't found success or happiness playing digital releases when dice are involved, just because it does lose something not being able to roll those dice. So, like, you push a button and the dice kind of like do a thing, and you're like, oh, those things. It's almost seems completely random, which it is when you do it on your own. But nonetheless, yeah. <laughs> it, it does feel like. You're doing something, right? Like, I'm going to roll. I rolled a certain number. Look at me with my special roll powers and how I rolled the thing. So I get it, but I still like to roll the dice. Just something about it that I think it loses out on. The bigger games might be an issue long term, like I talked about Agricola. What I'm really interested in is the Ares games, because when you play these flight pad systems, I would say probably about... 80% 80% of the game comes down to positioning and trying to figure out should you take a, you know, a hard left two or a hard left one or something like that. So if you have to do that on a tablet or on a phone, you know, I think it loses that, which I'm not opposed to. But I'm wondering how that actually is going to play out because it's not like you can actually literally take a giant piece of cardboard and place it on the, on the uh the board but you're not able to typically be able to see what that movement's going to give you so it's interesting to see what actually might come of this
1: yeah yeah that's what i kept thinking like i'd never expected to see this game digitally just for that exact reason it's so mm-hmm. tactile and it's so it's big too it's a big sprawling space and then converting that into a computer screen i, I guess we'll see how it works but sure
0: i'm very interested to see because if it does yes. work lots of possibilities very true all right well something i'm looking at forward to is in the same vein as anthony as far as just massive amounts of re of releases this is the and and i'll and i'll kind of quote this article by uh eric martin the rebirth of rio Grande games underwater cities caravan nevada city and more obviously part of the more is the recent announcement for puerto rico Obviously, part of this big thing is Anthony and I are big fans of Underwater Cities, and New Frontiers recently came out, and that's part of the Race for the Galaxy kind of universe, so that's been pretty huge. Concordia Venus was a game I got a chance to recently play. That's an expansion for Concordia, which my group is big, big fans of, so we would love to see that. So Rio Grande has been kind of, like, quiet. They've just pretty much been releasing dominion titles up until this point and being able to see i guess what i we talked about recently was the power grid update their anniversary uh re-release so that was something that i guess maybe should have said they were going to do more and it looks like they're doing a lot more so i'm really excited rio Grande has some amazing titles and I don't know. I I think that Rio Grande is going to probably be the uh, publisher of the uh, year, at least so far. Yeah, it's a lot of good stuff. I mean, and
1: having already played a couple of these, being like, well, I already have two games that are way high on my list for 2019, regardless of what comes out from these guys. So
0: I don't know. It'd be cool to see. Yeah. And for me, especially, and especially for me is Roll for the Galaxy Rivalry. This is another expansion, and I'm a big fan of Roller for the Galaxy, and It offers some different modules, it offers a whole bunch of dice, and they're doubling down on this whole Roll Race for the Galaxy type of system, which I could not be too unhappy with because these games constantly hit the table, and it'd actually be nice to see them hit the table a little bit more. All right, Anthony, so those are the games and the apps that will be hitting our tablet and table pretty soon, so we're looking forward to talking to you more about those as they come up. Let's get on to the games that are hitting our table this week. So for this week, we are talking about two games each that recently hit our table. And we're going to let you know if those games are a buy and you should run out and pick those games up. If those games are a play and you should sit down and enjoy that game at the table. Or if those games are a dodge and you should avoid those games at all costs. And you know what I'm going to say? Once in a while... You might need to burn a game, especially in this type of weather. Hopefully you haven't had those types of games recently. Anthony, what did you play this week?
1: All right. Yeah, like you said, played a couple games. First one I want to talk about is a new one from Eric Lang and Antoine Bauza, Victorian Masterminds. This is from Simon, of course, because it's an Eric Lang game. And in it, you are, I guess you're like villains from a Sherlock Holmes story, except Sherlock Holmes is maybe dead and therefore you can do whatever you want there's a big old board in the middle of the table it has five different cities with each of them with five different action spots each of those cities has four buildings on it they're all ostensibly the same although they have different molds and one of them will give you points another one will give you a resource another one gives you a scientist etc etc like nothing crazy they don't do a lot and they're worth points at the end of the game but they're these big huge molds the action for each of these spaces too is fairly simple like there are two resource types in the game that you're going to use to build your own little contraption. You have your own personal board, has all these little puzzle pieces. And as you add those bits to the board, your personal board, uh, you will unlock those puzzle pieces, which give you bonuses, unlock additional things you can do, upgrade your abilities, give you points for the end of the game. And the that those are pretty much what you're trying to do. The game ends when somebody builds out their entire thing. right? So the core mechanic of the game is you have these five little chips. They're basically poker chips, but they're shaped like cogs. And on each of them is one of five different agents that you can use. They're the same for everybody. So one of them doubles in action. Another one lets you claim a mission card. Another one lets you steal a building. So stuff like that. You're going to draw the top one of your pile, look at it, and then place it face down in one of those five action spaces. Everybody's going to keep doing that until one of those stacks has three chips on it. And then you flip them all over and resolve all three. And you just keep doing this and doing this and doing this until one of the end game triggers happens. One of them is that somebody finishes their machine. The other one is that the secret service meter, which basically measures how many buildings have been stolen, hits 12. So if you steal all the buildings off the board, the game ends. The overall, I think the game takes maybe 30, 45 minutes tops. It's very, very quick. And like most of what you're doing, like the game claims it's fairly strategic. I don't know that it necessarily is just because until halfway through the game and depending on the actions you take, maybe the whole way through the game, you only have one chip to choose from and you don't really know what everybody else is doing. So you're just putting it where you need something. So there's not a lot really to think about. There are certainly decisions to be made. You can think through like, well, maybe someone put their saboteur over here and the saboteur cancels the action on that chip. So if you put yours on top of the saboteur, then you flip them over. That chip now doesn't do anything. You still get to take the location action. So you're not completely out of luck. Uh, and it's not really take that because you can't control who's going to put your their chips on top of your saboteur. It's more like a landmine, (laughs) like people mine the board with different saboteurs. You put your guy out. Ah, you can't take the action. So it's frustrating. I don't think it's game breaking or anything, uh, you know, in a way like a a take that mechanic can be. But it is a little frustrating, especially when people don't realize that it's there. Overall, though, I mean, I wanted to like this game. The production is just beautiful. These big miniatures. The artwork's very interesting. It's Antoine Bowza. It's Eric Lang. So many things going for it. But at the end of the day, it's really just kind of meh. I don't like, and there's a few reasons. One, and this is just the same thing I come back to every time we talk about a new Simon game that's in like this middle level is it's super overproduced for no reason. Like, I mean, other than that, it's Simon, and they feel like they have to. You have these building miniatures and they they don't need to be anything because you don't they don't really do anything. They sit there until you claim them and then they sit in front of you for the rest of the game. And it's cool that there's a unique, you know, monument for each of the five cities, and it's cool that each of the three different building types are a different sculpt, but they don't need to be. And that's, you know, twenty different building miniatures that are in this box, and they're good sized. They don't need to be. And then on the flip side you have these little itty bitty tiny little pieces that go on your board for the resources that are so easy to lose i've already lost maybe five or six of them it comes with like 50 so it's probably fine but they're so tiny and it reminds me a little bit of way of the panda where you have these big massive honking miniatures and then these tiny little dudes that are easy to drop and lose forever and i just don't understand why you do that um the getting the actions blocked like i said that's kind of frustrating it's again i i I don't love that kind of mechanic in a game, but I know some people don't mind it, so I'm not going to say it's a problem with the game necessarily, but it's there. It's the only action that does that. It's a little frustrating. The missions uh, at the beginning of the game, it takes a little bit of time to build up to them. By the end of the game, they're, the way they're scaled, you can probably complete any mission you want. So you're really just putting that chip wherever you need that resource because you can complete that mission probably. They're they're all related to like which pieces of your machine are done and how many of these different types of resources or buildings you have. And like you're going to have those things. So it's pretty unlikely that you're not going to do at least three or four that are on the board. Halfway through the game, most of the players are going to unlock the ability to choose whichever chip they want, which is an interesting mechanic, especially if someone decides not to do that. And then they're still just drawing the one and placing it. I don't know. It just didn't really come together for me. It's kind of abstract. I don't really feel the theme, despite the fact it's littered in everything here, like visually. quick. It's forgettable. Usually a game like this that's only 30, 40 minutes long, you you know, sometimes you want to set it up and play it again real quick. It's so fiddly that it just takes a few minutes to put everything away anyways that, I, I don't know. Nobody was really interested in putting this back to the table, including myself. I was disappointed. Um I wasn't surprised we did get a chance to try this over the summer and I think we played like a third or half the game and Chris had zero points and I had I don't know like 20 something and that's just kind of the way the game was flowing which if your actions keep getting canceled is what's going to happen. <laughs> so You don't say. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, right? It's hard to know though. You play a game like that, you're like, "Oh, you don't really know what you're doing." But now having played it a handful of times, I'm like yeah, that's that's the game. <laughs> Yay. So I don't know. This one's a dodge for me. I don't like you look at it. It's pretty the designers. You're like, oh, cool. I, I say dodge it. Don't there's no reason to track this game down. It'll probably be really cheap at some point because that's what happens to Simon games that don't do well. So if you really, really like the theme, maybe wait it out. But otherwise, this is a game you could skip.
0: Yeah, I was really disappointed just because, as you mentioned, the designers pedigree is amazing. The production is phenomenal. And I like myself a light to medium weight worker placement esque type of game. But as you mentioned, one of the challenges of the game is just the fact that not that you were losing turns, but you were losing turns without anyone necessarily intending you to do that. It was kind of random and it was, oh, I. I'm going to put something here. It's going to do something at some point to someone. Okay. That's, that's a thing. It's just, it's not really a game. It's just kind of, you know, you might as well roll a die and just see what happens or it's a little Russian roulette, but otherwise it's, it, it's kind of surprising. And the worst thing for a game is when you don't get to do anything because you want to do something. It may not be a thousand points, but you want to do something that you feel like you're engaged and, and, when random things are happening that no one necessarily intended to happen, it seems a little odd. Yeah, and, and the stupid thing about that chip is that it has no
1: benefit to the owner of yeah. the chip, right? You Because you can't target anybody specifically, you're just losing an additional action that you could get. So once you unlock the ability to look through your chips and pick which one you want to play, nobody uses the saboteur anymore because it sucks. <laughs> like There's no reason to use it. You're not getting any bonus from using it. So I I just don't know why it's there. And it's and that's not the only problem with the game. It's just it's one of the more glaring. All right.
0: Games. Well, do you have anything else for us?
1: Yeah. So on the flip side, uh, I played another game, New Frontiers, which, Chris, you mentioned at the top yes. of the show. This is the board game edition of Race for the Galaxy. So Tom Lehman is back. He is revisiting the well for the fourth game in this series. So now we have jump drive at the very low end race for the galaxy roll for the galaxy kind of in the middle and new frontiers which i'm not it's not heavier but it's bigger (laughs) um and it is very much a board game it takes the role selection uh, mechanic from uh, puerto rico and San juan and it adds it to the basic core mechanics of race for the galaxy so you have planets you have developments you have your own tableau you're building out Uh, all the iconography is going to be similar you're going to be you know, producing, putting different goods on different planets, ideally generating victory points and money with those different goods that you be trading and consuming. It's uh, very, very similar and very familiar to anybody who's played either race or role before. Like the setup time and teaching for this for people who've already played any of those is like five minutes. People who have not played those before, it's a little bit longer because as you know, if you have, there's a lot of iconography in these games. So you have to know those things. You have to know what a windfall world looks like versus a production world versus a military world. To know what all these different icons are and the different actions. But in general, the game is fairly straightforward. On your turn, you pick one of the eight different um, action tiles that are out there. You take the action and the bonus because you chose the role. Everybody else just takes the action. And then you move to the next player. And so you kind of rotate through this every round you're going to reset based on the player order, if that changes. And uh, that's pretty much it. You just keep going until you reach one of the end game conditions, which are, again, pretty familiar. Either the victory point pool runs out, somebody builds um, enough of the world, somebody builds enough of the developments, or the little settler tokens, which are used here to rec- represent that you've settled a world that you've explored, um, are all used up. So When you draw these worlds, which are these big cardboard circles, you're going to draw them from a giant bag, a giant bag. It is huge. Um, (laughs) We talked about Castel back in the day. as like this big giant bag with stuff in it. It's like that Mm. size bag. And it has, I don't remember how many of these worlds, maybe 40 or 50 in there, but you draw them out. uh, You draw a good number of them, like six or seven, and then everybody picks them and you place them down. Those are unexplored. They're flipped over. You then have to take a separate action later to ex- to settle them, which requires not only paying the cost of the world, because when you explore them, they're all free, but you have to pay the cost, and you have to put the number of settlers on there that are required. So just an extra mechanic and resource to kind of keep track of uh, as the game flows. General flow of the game, though, is very quick. Like any of these race roll games, it's you know 45 minutes to an hour. The setup is a little bit long because you're putting every single development tile out on this giant board in the middle of the table for people to choose from. But mechanically speaking, especially once people get the iconography down, it flows really, really smoothly. So the big question people have uh, or when I tell them that I picked this up and have played it is how is it like the other games? And I mean, obviously it uses all the same ideas. It has developments, it has the worlds, you're producing and you're selling and you're generating income and it has military that acts as an you know, alternative currency if you're building uh, military worlds but at the same time because it takes that role selection mechanic and uses that as basically everything you're doing on your turn um, it feels different like I have r- roll for the galaxy I have jump drive and now I have this and I'm gonna keep all three and you know race for the galaxy is the game that ended up dropping off for me when I picked up roll for the galaxy but I don't have that feeling with this it feels different enough and the the main thing that it does is it just gives that little bit more planning and the fact that everybody can kind of know what's going to happen and organize you know their actions based on what they think other people are going to do the end game is just as abrupt as any of these games because that's how they're designed and the the way the game starts is a little more interesting because you do get to draft out the starting worlds and it comes with a ton of them so uh, there are these giant boards that the game comes with each of them has two sides and therefore two starting worlds on it. So you get a lot of different options to choose from. So ideally you don't get stuck with a military world if you don't want one. From there, it's pretty straightforward. The one thing I will say about this game that is a little frustrating is the production. And not in a bad way, right? This The production here is good. It's high quality, very nice cardboard. The artwork that you remember from all the race and role games, everything's clear. The iconography is big enough to read on everything now because all the pieces are very large. And... You have these nice little like settler meeples. To represent that icon that you you know from Roll for the Galaxy, but it's just it's so big. Like the box is one of the biggest regular board game boxes I have. It completely fills a calyx, like in terms of dimensions. It's like thirteen by thirteen. It comes with goods cubes that are unnecessarily oversized. So they're scaled based on their values. So the yellow cubes are tremendously large. The alien ones, and. It I don't know, like it's all cool and I like it, but at the same time, the game is $75 because of it, which I, I mean I traded in stuff to, to pick this one up, and therefore, you know, it wasn't like this big, huge expense for me. You can get it online for 50 55 so it's not the worst, but it's just further and further into this world where a very standard board game that five years ago would have cost 50 bucks is now $75. And they justify it by just making everything really big. (laughs) And I don't know know that I like that or could support it. Like, I I would rate this game a buy. I really, really like it. But I don't know that I would recommend that you actually go buy it, unless you can find a good deal on it. Or if you're just the world's biggest Race for the Galaxy fan, and you you know you're going to play this. So I'm a little torn on that side of things. I do know that a few people in my group have not been enamored with this, who are huge Race or Roll for the Galaxy fans. That's normal, I think. If you really, really like one thing, you're not necessarily going to like a real implementation of that thing. But as somebody who's just likes all those things and is not, you know, that's not my game. That's not the one game I play over and over and over again. Um, I thought New Frontiers was a really, really cool kind of spin on all those different mechanics matched together. So there you go. It's a buy. Maybe you don't buy it at the full price, but if you find a good deal on it, go for it. And if you see it at the table, definitely, definitely sit down and play it. That's New Frontiers.
0: Yeah, this is a a challenging one. I remember when they placed this out, I was kind of excited about that. And then when you mentioned the price, it really just dropped me down like several notches on it. You know, for many years now, people have been talking about the, you know, the boom and the bust of board gaming. And I've constantly been against that because it just does not seem to want to stop in any way, shape or form And we see that new people are joining the hobby. We know that board gaming has outpaced toy sales and a a number of other different activities. I think Kickstarter recently had a report last year where they said that board gaming sales were dramatically, by a large percentage, higher than video game sales. But I think that we are probably going to get to a point sooner than later where games just become way too expensive to buy i think i think we're hitting a ceiling i I think we've already hit a ceiling and i think we're at a point where the good stuff is just not going to get a chance to get played because it's just too much money to kind of sink in just for an initial play
1: yeah like we play euro games and it seems like the new standard price people have settled into is 70 like newsfjord costs that's crazy heaven and ale costs seventy. you know black Yeah, exactly. And there's nothing even in the box. Blackout Hong Kong, which I just picked up is 70 bucks. And there's not that many components. The game's good. These are good games. But when you're looking at what you get out of the box and what you used to get, or the fact that you can go on Amazon and buy Castles of Burgundy for 25 bucks, you're like, 70 bucks? Come on, guys. Like, And that's Two games in my budget if I'm gonna buy sure. that. So it does make it so you buy less stuff.
0: Yeah. And I, I understand that companies are not that concerned about that because it's one of those situations where they're like, hey, you know, we're getting our money either way. And I completely understand that. And I'm, but here's the thing new gamers are not dropping $70 on a hobby to begin with right off the bat. Like if, if someone doesn't have this game, if someone's not making this initial purchase, You're going to lose new gamers because they're just not going to jump in that deep. And I think we see this problem with Kickstarter, too. We just talked about Suburbia earlier, where it's fantastic that it has all of this extra stuff. And I want all the extra stuff. But am I going to pay $150 for Suburbia? You know, I mean, if you're a new gamer and you came on the Kickstarter, you're like, hey, there's a brand new game out there. It's called Suburbia. I could pick up everything for $150 because otherwise I won't find all that stuff later. That's a huge, huge hurdle to jump just to play a game that when it initially came out, maybe was $50, you know, maybe 30 something dollars online. And back in the day, we were like, well, it's a lot of money for a game. It's a good game. It's got a lot of money for the game. And we were totally supportive of that price. But yeah, I think we're running into a little bit of a, you know, final destination here or something. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's 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 getting rough. Well, speaking about giant, crazy games with a ridiculous number of components and prices that would choke a T Rex, I'm going to talk about Dinosaur Island Totally Liquid Extreme Edition. Now, this is the <laughs> second Kickstarter for Dinosaur Island. If you remember Dinosaur Island, it goes something like na 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 na. Uh, legally, that's all I can sing. And not well, because legally we're not allowed to sing even well because we get sued and stuff like that. (laughs) Oh, that's your excuse? Okay, that makes sense. (laughs) That is my excuse. I, I, you know, it's my uh, legally distinct excuse. (laughs) So Dinosaur Island is this totally radical late 80s, early 90s theming of Jurassic Park. It plays like the movie kind of plays out in some aspects. You're running on your own park. You're getting DNA from Amber Dice you're building dinosaurs, you're using technologies, hopefully people won't get eaten. If they do, you lose points. Whoever has the most points, based typically based upon dinosaurs, wins the game. Pretty straightforward. You heard the review, jump back, you can hear the whole review again. It's a great game. That being said, this is the expansion. So Totally Liquid comes with a lot of different things. As it mentioned the title, Totally Liquid comes with all the marine dinosaurs, which is just going with the theme, totally awesome. Because Marine dinosaurs are crazy. They're even more fantastical than the regular land dinosaurs. So it's great to have them in the game. Now, there are a number of different, I would say, modules that are added to this game. So it's kind of hard to say if you need to play with all of them. I did play with them separately. I played them all together. Let's run through them pretty quick. First off, fifth player. That's a typical trope when it comes to you know light to medium Euro games. Let's throw a fifth player in. Why not? Dinosaur Island handles it really well. It's one of those games where everything is kind of like open information. Everyone's taking a turn pretty quickly. Fifth player does not slow down this game. It's great. It's also purple. Purple is an excellent color. So glad to have purple in there. Definitely a good addition. It also has, as I mentioned earlier, the marine dinosaurs. Now, the marine dinosaurs are blue. In the, you know, I guess in contrast to the neon pink ones that are the land dinosaurs. So with the marine dinosaurs, you get a whole bunch of different plastic dinosaurs that are the marine dinosaurs. You also get their formulas. So you get these little plaques that allows you to build your dinosaurs on a certain paddock. You also have the formulas there. You have the cost, the threat, the whole nine yards. These are great. What they do that's a little different than the land dinosaurs is that they have different costs based upon what scientists is needed for there. So when you have this little stack, you flip over the top, it may be a one or two or three. Sometimes the dinosaurs have a lot of threat. Sometimes they have a lot of victory points. They're kind of like the super random kind of like, they're not so balanced. They're just kind of out there. They're a good addition. They are, I wouldn't say a necessarily a required addition for the game because they are going to throw some craziness out there. But they're nice to have, so I would definitely add them. So those are solid. The facilities and executives is a little wonky. Now, when I played this game a couple of times right off the bat, people had wanted to have more asymmetrical gameplay here. So the facilities are these small boards that are added to your rest of your park. And they're going to give you a certain ability. So you might have the one that builds the Mega T-Rex. You might have the dinosaur eggs that build up to dinosaurs. You might have the little dinosaur petting park. You might have a hotel. There's a whole bunch of different opportunities there. Now, those are drafted along with these executives. Now, the executives gives you an additional meeple that you'll be able to play on the board. And each little executive card will tell you what specifically your meeple does. Okay, here's the thing. The facilities and the executives, either separately or together, are, I would say, more or less kind of unbalanced. Just because depending on what objectives you use in the game, typically those are random, but they may not be, they are going to heavily slant to one player or the other. So you might have an objective that says, whoever builds 12 dinosaurs. Well, you had the dinosaur eggs or you had the petting zoo. There you go. So... It's a little challenging as far as those asymmetrical elements kind of throwing the game off. Now, I will also say what's challenging about this game and what you must do with this game if you do play with the totally liquid extreme edition for Dinosaur Island is you must play the long game. I say this not because I want you to play a very long game, but I'm saying this because if you're playing with these expansions, a lot of these expansions really don't come into full play unless you get to. Utilize them to their full extent. So, if you're going to build the Mega T Rex, well, guess what? It needs a lot of DNA, it needs a lot of money, it needs a lot of security. So, you might be in a situation if you play a medium game, you may not be able to build him at all or just build him and nothing else. So, highly, highly, highly recommend if you're going to play with any of these, especially the facilities and executives, play with the long game. The executives are a mixed bag, they do what they do. It's nothing, you know, that you would miss if you didn't play with them. Let's move on to two expansions that really do have a place in this game. Blueprints. Blueprints are pretty interesting because you're going to get a number of these handed to you. You are going to pick one of these. And basically, it's going to tell you where things should go in your park. Where do you put the herbivores? Where do you put the rides? Where do you put all the things in your park? Based upon where you placed everything in the park, You're going to get victory points. So the more things you place correctly, the more victory points you get. Once again, this could be in direct contrast to the objectives in the game. So that it's either good or bad. So once again, it's a little challenging. I'm not so sure. But nonetheless, as a mechanic itself, I like having the opportunity to build a park to certain specifications. Finally, there are PR cards. These PR cards are basically take two These are going to be bonus cards at the end of the game. You're going to pick one, and then it applies to everyone in the game. A lot of games have this. This is not anything radically new. It's okay. I wouldn't say that you should build towards this as a strategic goal, but you might want to pick one that you just happen to have more points at where someone else doesn't. It's just throwing more points in the game. What I like about this game is variety as far as the totally liquid extreme edition. What I don't like about it is that it's kind of all over the place as far as, is this good enough? Should we play with this? Is this tight enough? Is this strategic enough? Is this heavy enough? Or is it just kind of completely, completely random? Nonetheless, it's a totally radical extreme edition. I don't mind that. Some of the stuff definitely needs to be house ruled. Some of the erratas would probably correct some of these issues later on. It's a play. It's a solid play. I, I recommend if you have Dinosaur Island to have this edition in there. If for no other reason than the fifth player edition in the marine dinosaurs, because it's more of the same. The other stuff is OK. You can kind of take it or leave it. It's just, you know, kind of a little bit extreme in certain
1: cases. Yeah, I've, it's tough because I kind of always had that thought that this is what this would be. Yes. Because they're just like, we have ideas. Ah. <laughs> and i haven't really played with any of them yet like this Mm -hmm. this stuff has come out a couple times but really we just throw in the 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 water dinosaurs which yeah with their ridiculously weirdly balanced cost (laughs) (laughs) and threat levels so i haven't really played with a lot of these yet and we somebody always ends up with a giant mega t-rex meeple because of course of course but i haven't actually put that tile out yet for someone to purchase but that's part of it that's part of the reason why is like nobody's done the homework I mean, you have now, so now I know. But when it's done the homework of saying this one's good, this one's not, this one's imbalanced, this one's great. You know, it's it's kind of a headache when it all showed up. And it's uh, it's good that some are great, but it's still frustrating that they didn't pare it down a little bit. I think
0: we're seeing this more and more in expansions these days. It's not about and expansion that will make the game better. It's a bunch of ideas, as you mentioned, Anthony, that are just like these are fun. And I can't argue with that. But if you don't play the long game, don't play with anything else with the exception of the fifth player. And if you want a little kind of fun wackiness then the water dinosaurs, everything else is just kind of like challenging when it comes into mind with the objective. So just keep that in mind going forward. And let me mention one other thing too: the slap bracelet that comes with the extreme edition, the Kickstarter edition. I played this at a game night. We ended the game. We kept it out for a little while we put everything away a week or two went by. I played the game again and I realized I didn't have my slap bracelet, which is the first player mark in the game. And I'm like, Oh, well, this is great because I'm never going to find this again because (laughs) any number of people are just going to take it for the fun of it. And this week I went back to my game night. I'm like, well, I'll rip this place apart. I'll ask people, but I know I'm not going to find it. And someone just rolled it over to me and they were like, I was the last first player in the game and I just wore it all the way home. So (laughs) be warned, it's a weird, weird component in a very weird, weird game. But nonetheless, it's still fun. It's just very, very extreme. So, you know, make sure you get that back on the way home. So that is Dinosaur Island Totally Liquid Extreme Edition. All right, so I want to talk very quickly about a new game that came out from Queen Games. This is Franchise. Now, Franchise is a re-implementation of an older game, actually a medieval type of game. This version of it is more in lines of, I guess, merchandising and advertising in the USA in the 1960s. So it's all about starting franchises in the US. So it could be a car rental, it could be a diner, a coffee shop, a laundromat, all those types of like very 90s, 60s-esque type of looking Uh, marketing campaigns and basically what you're going to be doing is very very simple in fact you will start off in either one or multiple locations on the board depending on the player count and then you are going to take your pawn and then you are going to choose a route now the routes cause different amounts of money so you have to decide if you want to take a quick route to a city which is going to be very expensive or cheap route that might take you to a smaller city And then eventually get you to the bigger city. But what you're going to do is once you get your little token over there and you pay the cost, you'll have the opportunity to build a franchise on that spot. Great. In addition to that, you can build other franchises where you already have franchises there. But you have to kind of manage the situation here because when you build a franchise, you are going to be able to collect income at the start of your round. You only collect a high amount of income if there is, let's say, for example, only one in a city. So you will collect, let's say, for example, if it's New York, that's going to be a high cost city. So you might be able to collect, let's say, seven because there's only like one or two franchises there. But the more franchises you or your opponents place in that area, the less money, because that market becomes cluttered, you're going to be able to receive. But throughout the game you are going to be expanding you are going to be putting franchises out once somebody has an absolute majority in a city that city will score those victory points if there's a tie there's a whole bunch of you know nonsense that goes on and basically that city's taken off the map those little franchises stay and then once a region is filled up you will count the number of franchises in that region they'll collect additional victory points And once enough of those region tiles are placed on the bottom of the board, based upon who scores those, then the game will come to an end. So once again, very, very, very straightforward game. You are placing out your pawn, you are building franchises, you're paying the cost for those travel destinations, you're building additional franchises, which lowers income, but nonetheless, you need for majority score. And that's pretty much in a nutshell. Beautiful production. The board looks really great. The artwork in the game is a lot of fun. It's got that nineteen sixties back in the day kind of look to it. And beyond that, I, I I guess the only I guess downside I could say is a it's a little clunky and a little simple when you have these kind of like the boards like depending on the number of players you have to flip over or get a different board. The iconography is a little basic. It's a little It doesn't have any passion or spirit to it. It's just very mechanical. And the gameplay itself is just very straightforward and just like one note. But it's a good game for what it is. It's something that is not necessarily a filler, but something that will play very quickly. So for Franchise by uh, Queen Games, I would say the game is a light play. Love the artwork by Enol Tool And uh, the designer Chris Walt Conrad uh, did a good update for the game generally
1: yeah i've had a chance to play this one too i uh i think i'm in the same boat as you uh it it felt to me playing it like a lot of the i don't know like the anachronistic parts of power grid like the stuff that we don't see in games as much anymore like you said like blocking off parts of the board and yeah flipping things around and adjusting the player count stuff to the nth degree but without the kind of additional level of complexity that you get in power grid that comes with like the the auction and yes. money management right because it's it's really just that one note of where it you is put your stuff and how are you going to generate income so i like that it's a little bit simpler i don't know i'm not saying it's like power grid but, it's, but you know they obviously went for that comparison themselves so we're going to bring it up but it's not as good so it's definitely you know on the play side it's definitely worth checking out and it it does look really nice it is very pretty um for this type of game but I do wish it had something else in there, like just one extra mechanic or something.
0: Yeah, I have the little queenies that come along with the game. It doesn't really add much to the game. It definitely needs expansion. As you mentioned, it does really fit as far as like a step before getting into Power Grid. And it feels lacking, I guess, because Power Grid has been out there for so long. So yes, you can block people off from different areas and you can kind of put franchises to eat up their income. But It's just like you're just pulling one lever and there's never anything else more to it. So if you like the look of the game, if you're interested in playing it, it's worth a play, but probably not more than that. All right, so for our feature review, we are talking about board games that give us the feeling of revolution, of social justice, of making the world better for your community, your family, just making things better. So we want to talk about six games, too light, too medium, too heavy, Games that are really interesting, interactive, and actually a lot of fun. These are not your heavy, thinky, break your brain kind of situations, but these are really interesting, either light and comical to heavy and historical games that we think that you might be interested in. All right, so first up are the games on the lighter side. Anthony, why don't you start us off? Yeah, yeah. So I'm
1: gonna I'm gonna start off with root because I think this list absolutely has to have a, a coin style counterinsurgency game because those games are all about not just war with you know traditional war games, but the interactions between different factions in society and most importantly, like the uprising of the oppressed within that society. And Root has that. So you have the bad guys, the cats who are just trying to spread out and take everything over. You have the birds who have their big empire up in the sky and they just don't want anybody to mess with them. But then you have the Woodland Alliance, which has a lot of really interesting mechanics and in how they spread out and they build sympathy and then they rise up and they destroy everybody <laughs> when they do it. It's a very, very cool mechanic, but it's also just a, a cool idea to put in a board game that's this accessible and has been this widely played in the last year or so and i think the addition of this type of mechanic and this type of idea into games like this is very important and people don't necessarily think about it but when you do it's it's a very interesting idea that i hope we see in more types of games especially at this weight level kind of in the mid threes so that's root
0: all right Well, the game i want to talk about in the lighter side is rise up the game of people and power so we've seen a lot of social movements these days and we've seen a lot of people try to work for the betterment of society well rise up offers us a unique opportunity to actually figure out and strategize on how you can bring different communities bet together in order to beat the system so to speak now what's great about rise up is it has a younger version so you can play with young people so maybe they're looking to bring more trees or uh better their community themselves or it has and it has a heavier version for adults that are looking to figure out how they can put together neighborhoods, workplaces, farms, environment, culture, internet, how to bring together all these great systems like campuses and faith-based communities in order to move forward, make the situation a little bit better for people, and sometimes just go right out and crush the system out there. This is a great look of a game if you're looking to put together social movements with some interesting card mechanics and set collection mechanics. Rise Up, the game of people and power. All right, Anthony, let's get on to our medium weight games. What do you have up for us? Yes, so this one stretches the definition of medium a little bit.
1: But on the low end of the lower difficulties, it could be medium. Uh, That's Spirit Island. Spirit Island is one of the best games of all time. So... Mechanically, there you go. It's uh, it's my favorite cooperative game. Period. But what makes the game so interesting, and I think important for us to talk about in this episode, is that rather than being colonists or soldiers or whatever you would be in any other game where you're working together to destroy something, you are the people, or in this case, the spirits defending the island from the colonists. So the island itself is full of villagers and they are you know susceptible to uh, the colonists that are coming to take over the land but as a spirit you can do a lot of things to fight them back so the as a cooperative game it's very similar to you know other similar types of games in which the colonists are going to spread they're going to take over you need to manage them in different places while also trying to meet certain victory conditions but the really cool ideas in this game are just that you have to work against the natural inclinations of the colonists to destroy and subjugate the land, which is such a cool idea that it's just surprising no one else had thought about it in this particular way. What makes Spirit Island really interesting, too, is that it comes with specific countries that you can fight against. You know, uh, you have the British colonies or the, the, the Swedish or whoever. Specifically, that we're out there actually colonizing these different lands in the age of uh, discovery, you can actually play as them and they're a little bit harder. And they offer these different things to the game. And it just, I don't know that you necessarily need overt commentary. The basic idea here is you're not being taken over, you're fighting back, which is a cool idea. But it's just a new way to think about this type of game and really, honestly, to think about the types of things we do in games in general because frequently we're doing the opposite of this. And it's it helps that the game is just so darn good. Uh, it's just such a solid mechanical piece of gaming. That's Spirit Island.
0: All right, next up is a recent Kickstarter. I think it was out there quite some time, is Block by Block, the Insurrection game. Well, what we're looking at here is all about taking back their community, utilizing special ability cards in order to take control of different areas on the board while the police push back and they are kind of like police rule there. So you are utilizing different groups in order to connect together, roll dice, change tiles, exchange resources and really help each other out. As far as communities are concerned, this game plays semi co-op or full co-op and it's just a different type of game mechanic. As Anthony was mentioning with spirit island, typically these games are about conquering those areas. This game is about retaking the area that you already live in. Uh, Beautiful artwork, really interesting game design, and just a fantastic little game if you're looking to be the insurgents taking back your city block by block, the insurrection game. All right, Anthony, finally, let's talk about some heavy stuff, some historical stuff that is all about the true history and the revolutionary leaders of our times.
1: Yeah, yeah. This is a game that I talked about on my most anticipated for 2019, and for good reason. And that's Gandhi, the decolonization of British India, specifically 1917 to 1947. So this is another coin game. This is an actual coin game uh, in GMT's coin series. And all the coin games have similar structures in which there's different factions. They're all asymmetrical. And you have kind of a card-based system and how they interact with each other, but they're all war games. You're fighting each other. What makes Gandhi interesting is that it takes place in those last two, three decades of the British Raj when Gandhi was offering a non-violent opposition to the Raj. And you get to play that out. So the game has Gandhi as a sole leader piece. It has a non-violent faction. And the nonviolent operations and different activities in the game are all unique. But they're also almost always active. And the way that they end up interacting with The Raj and the other factions is again unique to the coin series because it's all about the protests and the way that historically they would have, you know, fought back against British rule. A lot of other things are brought in here. You have like the British rule track that reflects how people are responding to events, the Hindu Muslim unity track, measuring like kind of the ongoing tensions between the two communities as these things played out. There's an out-of-play jail space where people are put in jail for their nonviolent activities lots and lots of cool ideas taken from this historical period and put into the game, but also just opens up a lot of new ideas for what you can do in a quote-unquote war game where one of the factions doesn't actually physically fight but uses nonviolent protest to to voice their opinions but also gather the hearts and minds of the people that they're trying to you know influence. I've been really excited about this game for a long time and I think it's going to be Not only an interesting new take on this entire genre, but hopefully open new doors to other historical periods and figures that we can look at who did similar things for their own societies. So that's Gandhi, the decolonization of British India, hopefully coming out this year.
0: Back in early American history, one of the main problems and one of the original sins of the US, along with the desolation of the native people of, of the Americas, is slavery in America, and the Underground Railroad takes players through a cooperative play. Some there's some pick up and deliver, there's some point to point movement and some variable player powers, but throughout the game, you are playing the historic transformative era of abolitionists and how these notable figures and pivotal events are playing out throughout history. There's actually a number of cards that reference a number of things throughout the US history, and different elements that took place and the different uh historical figures that were trying to end slavery in the u.s and what you're trying to do is save and ferry as many slaves as possible up to safe zones up in canada so throughout the game you are moving the slaves throughout trying to save their lives. Then there are these slave catchers moving out throughout the game board that are trying to cut you off. So sometimes you have to make some very difficult decisions in order to save as many people as possible. This game is an experience. And to be honest with you, it's an experience that I haven't returned to very often just because even though it's cubes on a board and there aren't actual people it is really a striking experience personally and having the opportunity to play a game that is so rich historically and really touches on the emotionality of that situation is, is tremendous. I know freedom, the underground railroad has been used in a number of different school settings and Academy games has done a tremendous job at this game, especially the designer, Brian Mayer, phenomenal, phenomenal game. And it really kind of like speaks to our history and speaks to the great people that uh, helped others make their way to freedom. All right, so there you go, six great games that take social justice board gaming to a whole new level. There are a lot of games out there that are great, but maybe their themes aren't the best. These are six games that bring fun, people to the table, and allow you to understand how you can transform your community have a lot of fun doing it and learn something about yourself and the world around you. All right, Anthony, that's everything for this week, but not the end of BGA. There are so many more episodes back on our Patreon account. Don't forget, patreon.com backslash BGA. There are more bonus episodes talking about great things in board gaming. But until next time, this is Chris. And this is Anthony. And we'll see you all as See at the Table.